Hello and welcome. I am so excited for today. Uh, we have Sherry Curtical, who is the founder of Victims Voice. That it is it's a it's an online app that is helping so many people um, with documenting their abuse. So today is kind of a heavy topic. So I hope you'll stick around. And um, she's got really some great stuff to share with us about support and how important it is to have support in our lives. So um, stick around. Can't wait to get started. Do you feel trapped in your own life? Join me on my journey weekly in my Freedom Project for ways to break free from the toxicity that holds you back in your life and discover how to stay free so you can shatter fears and walls to be the most authentic you. All right. Thank you so much. We have we have Sherry Critical in with us today. Hey, Sherry. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. Sherry is the founder of Abinra Incorporated, which actually stands for Ending Barriers in Reporting Adversity. And she is the victim's voice front lady. Um, and her superpowers include taking unpopular complex problems and creating easy to use solutions that um, <laughs> that generate measurable results. And um, she's actually the survivor of over 29 years of child abuse and domestic violence. And she's, she's endured the criminal and family court system experiences herself. So she, she's got a, a, a really extensive story that I can't wait. Um, I think my heater just came on. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to, to share that with everybody. Now, um, Sherry has actually spoken for many professional organizations and she's published several industry papers and magazine articles and also continuing education courses. So, um, you know, working in the tech in, in the tech industry, she's actually responsible for coordinating or she was responsible for coordinating the first international key, uh, keynote webcast between, is it CBIT? Is that how you say yep. it? CBIT in Germany and CES with the, in the U S and um, she's hosted and presented for countless webinars and live conferences, which I actually had the pleasure of attending recently. And it was amazing. It was just such a great experience. Thank you. And so, yeah, and so then throughout all that, um, you know, her attention to giving back has really remained a high priority, right? And just acting as the marketing and technical director for New Jersey Farm to School Network and the event organizer for, is it Fernbrook Farms yep. for the annual farm yep. run? And she's a gardener and y'all, she uses, she uses her own raised, um, raised beds of vegetables to provide for her local soup kitchen, which is just amazing. That's just awesome. So, you know, now her focus is on making a measurable difference in the lives of all victims and survivors so that their abusers can be held accountable 
and then they can begin to reclaim and rebuild their lives in safety on their own terms, which I think is just beautiful. You've taken your own toxic, abusive, and just mud admire story and turn it into something beautiful for other people. And I just, I just want to start by saying I am honored that you're here today. Thank you so much for coming. Um, So it's your turn to talk. (laughs) So, (laughs) so tell, tell us a little bit, I want to start off with your story. Do you mind sharing us um, just kind of briefly sharing with us your, kind of where, how you got to this point. What's, what's, what's the story behind all this? So we'll do the 30,000 foot view first. Um, (laughs) So I um, was an only child for three years. And then my mother had a a daughter, another daughter. Um, My sister was born as what was known as a blue baby. Um, she only had two chambers in her heart. She had Down syndrome. Um, and after 12 weeks, she passed away. Um, my father was in the Navy. Um, and um, he we moved around a lot. I have, I'm finally older than the number of times I've moved, which was a big accomplishment. Um, but starting at around the age of two was when I lost my virginity at the hands of my father. <clears throat> Um, when I was nine years old, my father decided that I guess I wasn't enough, so he had to adopt more kids. So he started with my brother, and then um, after that, uh, a few years later, when I was 12, um, he adopted two more children, uh, two half sisters. And so we went from being a you know, family of three to uh, a, a large family very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father, it was non-discriminatory. He sexually, physically, emotionally uh, tortured us for many years. And it really wasn't until I was a junior in high school, I was 17, when my middle sister finally broke and told someone at school who, you know, school uh School staff are mandatory reporters, which means they are required by law to report any child that comes to them and and expresses any kind of abuse. So that kind of got the ball rolling. Um, And I was met with, you know, Sherry come to the principal's office and was met by a few police officers, investigators that promptly escorted me into the back of a police car and took me to the police station. Um, This was in the middle of my school day. So um, I went from, you know, being a teenager, first of all, is difficult enough. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, tell me about (laughs) it. You can pay me to go back to those those years. Um, But then to be pulled out out of school and escorted into the back of a police car, um, that was not handled properly at all. Yeah, no. Um, subsequently, the next year, my senior year, my, um, you know, was, was filled with uh, attorney interviews, depositions, um, being coached by attorneys as to, you know, what this process is going to look like and yada, yada. Uh, ultimately, as most 
um, abusers that are prosecuted, which is a very small percentage. I believe the percentage is around less than 2% now. Yeah. Um, most of those get plea bargained. And my father was no exception. So for 15 years of abuse to me and abuse to my three siblings, um, he received six weekends in jail. Wow. So growing up in that kind of environment uh, really skews your sense of self. Yeah. And all my relationships after that were pretty much just train wrecks. <laughs> mm. I was, um, as, as I learned the term from you, actually, I was a total people pleaser. Yeah. I wanted to be recognized and heard, um, but I didn't want to be discovered yet. So mm -hmm. I tried to fit in in the only way I knew that could get that kind of attention and, you know, it was really destructive relationships. Yeah. Um, I ultimately got married uh, pretty young. I, I was 23 when I got married, uh, 26 when I had my first child. And that marriage ended in divorce. Um, and then a few toxic relationships afterward. Um, the last one, I actually had to sneak away from the relationship. I bought a house. Um, unbeknownst to him, and had all my coworkers during lunch uh, come over with their cars and trucks, and I had rented a U-Haul, and during our lunch break, helped me load up the truck so that wow. when he got home, um, all my stuff was gone, and I was gone, and he had no idea where, where I was. Wow. Um, so that was, yeah, that was scary. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but I managed to do it. And it took me, it probably took me a good eight plus months to be able to do that. Having to set up secret bank accounts and PO boxes and, you know, carefully slide all my important documentation out of the house, start to move some important stuff out of the house without him noticing, um, trying to be very careful and not change my behavior. Um, make sure he felt like things were status quo. Um, and, you know, even, even with all of that, things were escalating. Yes. So just being really careful to escape. Yeah. yeah. But that was it. I bought my house, claimed my turf. And um, yeah, I've, I've been in the same house ever since. So, wow. so you're in the house that you bought. Yeah. Almost 19 oh, years. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So Dang. my PTSD is now old enough to vote. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know what? But the thing is, it's like I said, you know, you've, you've took the bull by the horns though. Yeah. You know, yeah. You took the bull by the horns. Um, what was that like as far as you did it? We know you did it, but what was it like to do that? Uh, terrifying. Um, I had to kind of pull back on a situation that helped me get over a lot of the trauma, uh, and, and getting over trauma comes in chunks. It's like mm -hmm. two steps forward, a step and a half back. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, each phase you move forward and you reclaim some part of yourself and you feel really great. And then something happens that kind of pulls you back in a little bit. And so you have to kind of regroup and pull on those 
those survival techniques that really move you forward. And so I really had to pull back on some of those, those tactics that I had used um, after my, my first marriage uh, to, to kind of get me to that next phase. Um, and for me, it was relying on mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the stories that I tell, and it's actually, I, I wrote about it in my Medium post, uh, a couple of Medium posts, was that um, there was a point in my life when I knew that I was a victim, <clears throat> excuse me, a victim. And I didn't want to be a victim anymore. I wanted to be a survivor. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted, I knew what I wanted. I just didn't know how to get there. Yeah. And the analogy that I use is, you know, you live in a shack and you know you'd love to have a beautiful home and somebody comes in front of your shack and delivers all of the latest and greatest construction tools, all the materials you need, blueprints, everything, and drops them all off, still in the package, brand new, right at your doorstep and says, okay, you got everything you need, now go build the house. Well, that's great, except you don't know how the tools work and you don't know how to read the blueprints. And, oh, I love that. You know, you, you don't know what to do with any of this stuff that you've been given. Oh, yes. So for me, I looked at um, who were some people that I felt were doing it right. Um, maybe not the way I would do it, but they were doing it in a way that was powerful. Mm. And so I, I'm going to show my age here, but <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> way back when in the dark ages, when <laughs> Whatever. the auto industry was ruled by a man named Lee Iacocca. Okay. And he, he was probably one of the most powerful figureheads I could possibly imagine. My other mentor was, um, I love this movie called Desperately Seeking Susan. I love B-movies. And it was just this funky movie about this, you know, Madonna plays this character, Susan, who um, just is unapologetically herself. And she's a little bit of a train wreck, but she's she's got this style that she owns and she doesn't care what other people think. And while that in itself can be a little bit self-destructive, you, you know, the part that she owned that style and knew who she was and was unapologetic was something that was really powerful to me because I was everything that wasn't. And so I called them my mentors in that I didn't know how to be powerful. So when I came to a situation where I, and and my fear, I would freeze. I would not do anything because I was afraid to do anything. So I would impersonate or personify uh, Lee Iacocca. So I would walk into a situation that I was terrified and say, you know, how would Lee handle it? Right. And I would stand up a little taller and I would put my shoulders back and I would just make this decision as, as confidently as I could. And as soon as the words would come out of my mouth, I would, you know, recoil and, and, oh my God, what have I done? But I started to see a pattern of people actually listening to me and paying attention to me and respecting me for making the decision. 
And I started to slowly see that it was building a positive change. And then there were the, okay, I, I have no idea who I am. I'm constantly imitating other people's styles because I want to fit in and not be seen. But now I was tired of not being seen and not being heard. So I started just doing little things like painting my fingernails a different color, wearing a different shade of lipstick, or um, not wearing the same blouse that every other woman my age was wearing, um, cutting my hair short rather than always having it long because that's what they wanted. So I started making these small changes in myself and again, being unapologetic about it. You know, I, this was me, this is who I was gonna become. Um, and again, over time, making those decisions, being someone else, eventually I didn't need to be that other person anymore because I became more comfortable with making those decisions and seeing what the outcomes were. Mm -hmm. So fast forwarding back to when I, when I bought this house, um, you know, that was one of those Lee Iacocca moments of, okay, I can do this. I can find people that can help me through the process and are, you know, the real estate agent that is going to be sympathetic to my position and understand and respect what I need and work with me. And I'm going to make these bold decisions and I'm just going to own them. And slowly but surely, I got to the point where I ended up, you know, signing my name, I think like 29 times and owning a house. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you sign your life away, isn't it? But, but you didn't sign your life away. You, you signed your, you signed into your life when you did that. I did. And I can't believe I'm saying this on a recorded uh, podcast, but um, there were a couple of really bold moves, those Madonna type moves that I did after I moved into the house. So the house, uh, the house is built in 1930, and the decorations inside the house look like they were from the 1950s. I mean, you literally felt like you were stepping into the past. They had the double-lined curtains with the cord that you pull and everything, and the man that had lived here before was a very private man, so everything was closed up in the house. Um, so I was, when I was... Uh, when I was in a different relationship, I was not allowed to eat Miracle Whip. Um, Hellman's was real mayonnaise and Miracle Whip was crap and yeah. you know, not allowed to eat this. So I went out to, I had a friend take me to one of those giant, you know, Costco or BJ's or whatever. And I bought a huge tub of Miracle Whip. And I, for a while, I couldn't eat egg salad anymore because I'd eaten so <laughs> Miracle Whip. <laughs> <laughs> but I ate it until I wanted to throw up. Um, oh, wow. And, but, the, but the really bold thing that I did was I closed up the house. I love to paint. And the house was painted in this, like, seafoam green, the entire house, the ceiling, the walls, everything. I guess I got a, a special on the paint and painted everything. Um, and so I'm a fiesta wear kind of girl where I love a lot of color. And so I closed all the blinds and I painted my house in the nude. I had paint in places no one should ever have paint. But oh, I, wow. Because I was reclaiming my space. 
And that is beautiful. And um, it felt great. I, I probably drank two bottles of wine while I was painting and probably had to do a lot of touch up afterward, but it oh, was wow. all mine. I love that. Oh my gosh. I love that. You know, what's so cool is I, I didn't, I didn't paint my house in the nude, but, <laughs> but I did. I did a lot of the same things where it's like those little pieces of finding yourself is that's exactly what you did. You had to take those bold moves. You had to do that to find out what works, what doesn't, what jives with me, what makes me tick, what, what clicks with me. So that, I mean, that is unapologetic. That is awesome. I'm almost a little bit jealous. <laughs> I might have to try that. <laughs> it's very liberating. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure you get paint that you can wash off afterward. <laughs> oh, it'd be all right. <laughs> if it's if it's paint where nobody can see it, I mean, what what difference does it make? <laughs> yeah, just make sure sometime when you're not having to wear a bikini. And <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> So, wow, that is so awesome. So I wanted, one of the things I wanted to ask you was at, at what point did you realize um, you used the, you kind of touched on it and which is awesome. Cause I was going to ask you anyway, um, where you realized that you were a victim and wanted to be a survivor. Like at what point did you reach that? Where, where did that, when did it click? So there were a few moments. Um, when I was a kid, there was a made-for-TV movie that came out. Ted Danson was in it. Um, probably a lot of people know the name of it. Something about Amelia. Mm -hmm. And up until then, um, I knew from the feeling of how I felt when I was being abused that it was wrong. But I couldn't put the word abuse to it. I didn't make that yeah. connection to it. And I was not allowed to watch that movie. Um, the previews would come on constantly. So I knew enough about what it was about. Um, I didn't watch it until years later. But um, that was one of those moments when I was like, oh, that's what's going on with me. Mm -hmm. um, probably the moment when it clicked when I said, okay, I'm done being the victim um, was I wasn't even currently in an abusive relationship at the time. Uh, I was kind of in between. But <clears throat> there's a horror movie called Nightmare on Elm Street. And mm -hmm. the character Freddy Krueger, you know, he has the big knife hands. Um, and there's a scene in the movie where Glenn and Nancy, the two main characters, uh, are standing on a bridge and Glenn is talking to Nancy about these dreamwalkers. And he, and he tells her, um, you know, yeah, that's how they get all their art and literature is they go into their dreams and they find all this stuff that inspires them and they bring it back out of the dreams. And Nancy says, well, what if they find a monster? And Glenn says, well, they just turn their back and walk away they take away all their power. And it was like a freight train hit me. I was just like, oh my God, I'm not currently being abused, but I'm still relinquishing all my power to these abusers because yes. I'm thinking about it and I'm feeling it all the time. 
I'm living in the trauma and the trauma is keeping me in that victim state. Yeah. And that's when I knew that I had to get out, but I didn't know how to get out of my own headspace. Yeah. Um, it took a lot of therapy. It wasn't just Lee and, and Madonna. Sure. <laughs> you know, a lot of therapy. Um, to and, and I liken the therapist to being the people that didn't tell me what to do, but showed me how those tools work and taught me how to read the blueprint. Exactly. And um, explained to me the dangers of some of those tools and how to use them properly. Exactly. And made sure that I knew how the safety gear fit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they were kind of like my coaches yep. through the process um, so that I could find the way that worked for me. Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that kind of is a great segue into one of the things that I really wanted to talk with you about was just having support. Now, you you are the founder of Victim's Voice. Yeah. Um, so Victim's Voice, can you kind of share with us um, real briefly the purpose of Victim's Voice, like what, what it is? Because I want to I want to get into support and um, and why we need support and uh, how how you and Victim's Voice has kind of been that voice and been been able to and and. Just talk to us a little bit about that. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So as you mentioned, um, when you were introducing me, you know, I've been through the criminal court system. I've been through the family court system. I've been through mediation, everything. Um, yeah. What people don't realize is most victims don't report mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, for a myriad of reasons, but they, they don't report what's going on. Out of that small percentage that is reported, um, and that percentage is about 23% of the people that are abused actually report it. So out of that 23%, eight out of 10 domestic violence cases are dismissed due to a lack of evidence. um, And also because victims are afraid to testify. Um, So attorneys and well-intended people tell victims all the time, you got to document everything, document, document. But the, the really dangerous part is um, not everything is admissible as evidence. Mm-hmm. Most of what's collected and documented doesn't even meet the criteria as evidence and won't be allowed in a court. Right. So I built um, with my team the uh, tool called Victim's Voice. It helps and makes sure that victims are, are documenting the right information in the right way uh, that meets that criteria. So should they need to go to court um, or find themselves in a custody battle or find themselves needing protection with a protection order, um, th- what they've collected will tell a com- more complete story and has the information stored in that right way so that it meets that evidentiary standard so they can be heard and believed. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so in, when it comes to having that documentation, what does that do for, for our victims in the sense of morale? Cause it seems to me like if I had had something where 
I had had it early enough on and I knew that I had something to fall back on, I feel like it would have, it would have boosted my, my, almost my, um, my sense of, of like, I can do this. Yeah. Like, like the safety net almost, it's almost like a safety net. Um, so couple there's so many questions I want to ask. <laughs> I'm trying to decide which one to ask first. <laughs> so what is it what does it do for the victim in terms of knowing that they have that? Like if you had had something like that, what would it have done for you? So a few things. Um, not everyone's case is going to end up in a criminal court situation. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. For some people, it's just the validation that what you went through actually happened the way that you remember it. Uh, Because victims of abuse, it isn't always physical. It isn't always sexual. A a lot of times, most of it is emotional Mm -hmm. um, and almost always includes financial abuse. It's, you know, that power and control circle that we hear about all all the time. Um, So when someone starts with, oh, you're going to wear that, or you're going out with your girlfriends again, um, why don't you just stay home with me and let's watch a movie? You know, when you start to feel like, oh my God, I can't do anything. I can't breathe. Or I'm walking around on eggshells all the time. Um, that's a moment to start documenting. Yeah. Because things happen gradually. It's like watching grass grow. You know, if you stand out on the back back deck and you watch the grass grow, it's going to get long before you know it. Yeah. Um, you didn't see it grow, right? Mm-hmm. Abuse is the same way. It's those little nitpicky things that start to gradually pull you under. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody goes out in the backyard and cuts the grass. And you're like, oh, my God, I had no idea it was that long. You know, so recently... I found an old handwritten journal that I had kept, I don't even know how many years ago, and I was reading it. And at first, I didn't even know what it was. I was like, oh, my God. And I'm reading this, I'm reading this. And then all of a sudden, I realized, oh, my God, this was mine. I didn't even recognize the voice in there because the person that I was then is not the person that I am now. Yeah. And what that did for me in that moment was make me realize how far I really have come in this journey. Um, you know, for me to tell the story of where I was being a kid versus now feels like that other person. But when you go back and you read that story, it's so powerful to see, wow, you climbed that Mount Everest and yes. you put your flag on the top. You know, yes. you claimed your stake. Um, one of the more practical reasons that we built this was a lot of victims becoming survivors do need protection. Um, And getting a protective order can be challenging. I'm located in New Jersey. It's a two-step process where you go in and petition the courts for a hearing. So you apply for what's called a temporary restraining order, TRO. And in that form, you, it's basically incident based. Something happens, right. That, that uh, warrants you to go out and get a protective order. But 
the average is 10 physical events before you actually call the police the first time or mm -hmm. try to get a protective order. Mm -hmm. So on a New Jersey protective order, there's a little space for you to put specific information about things that might, um, incidents that might uh, have influenced why you're here. So any historical information that, that might better explain the, the circumstances. If you don't put that in there, or you're general without dates and times and all those specific things, uh, by law, you are not allowed to talk about it at the final restraining order hearing. And if the one incident that you applied for the restraining order doesn't meet the strict criteria, or maybe your abuser is considered an upstanding citizen and this is considered a first time event because you've never reported any of the other stuff, your restraining order may be denied. Wow. And in many cases it is. And so having that report, being able to send the report to yourself and take that report and use that as part of your, the restraining order process ensures that you are able to talk about it at your hearing. You're able to better explain the circumstances, more likely to get your final restraining order. And it also informs the advocates as to what you've been going through so you can get better informed services based on where your needs are. Wow. Yeah. So to me, like I said, I use the term safety net that it, it really is like a safety net, um, which I also kind of liken to, we were talking about having mentors and having, you know, people, you had a group of people come and help you move during your lunch hour that time. So between having your documentation with victim's voice and having a support group, we know what that can do for somebody. What, what would you say, how can a lack of support and lack of all this, we know that your stuff can be denied in court if you don't have the documentation. We know that. But what can a lack of support, how can that be like just really toxic and keep somebody where they're at and, and prevent movement? Yeah, so there were times when I didn't have that support. Uh, and that's yeah. where I had to draw on my own um, figment of my imagination mentors sitting on my shoulders, you know. Um, it's really, really hard to trust. It's really right. hard to build trust. It's really a leap of faith to trust. Yes. Um, and in that first person that you decide to tell what's going on. And that first person may or may not be able to do anything for you. They may be a friend that is completely clueless as to the right thing to say, the right thing to do. Um, and they may, they may not say the right things. Mm -hmm. uh, they may inadvertently and, and just innocently uh, victim blame, you know, well, why don't you just leave? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, why should I leave? <laughs> I'm not the one abusing, you know, but they don't see it that way. And they, and people aren't trauma informed. They don't understand the dynamics of trauma. Um, so, I would tell you, if you're listening, 
and you're in that position, um, you're going to bump against a lot of people that you're going to try to trust and it doesn't work out. Um, but keep trying. Yes, You're going to have to keep trying. And oftentimes you'll find the first person that you take that leap of faith and trust that actually does help you is someone that's not connected to you. Um, someone like a victim advocate or someone on an 800 line or someone on a support group. Um, just someone that will listen to you and hear you and say, I hear you. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, this is happening to you. Mm -hmm. well, you know, how do you need me to help you? Yes. Um, not someone who says, well, you should, I hate the word should. I call it shooting. Yes. That's, that's, the yeah. Yeah. Um, should splaining. <laughs> I think we should. Yeah. That's yeah. the urban dictionary. Um, so take that leap of faith. Just keep reaching out carefully. You want to make sure that the person that you're reaching out to isn't connected to your abuser. And that's exactly. particularly difficult if your abuser is in a place of power. Mm -hmm. um, if they're in law enforcement or the legal system, um, they're a, you know, that well-respected member of the community where they have a lot of ties. Um, you know, I, I caution people on using social media mm -hmm. as a means to pour your heart out. Um, but sometimes that's the only place that someone can go and get that feedback that they need. Right. Um, a safe group, a safe private group. Yeah, there are no thing. There is no such thing as a private group when it comes to Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, any of those. Uh, just I caution you, mm -hmm. uh, and and we we put a lot of content up about that. Right. Um, but if you do it, talk in terms of what's happening to you. Don't name the person by name or identify them in a way that that calls them out that somebody would know who they are. Number one, that puts your own safety at risk. Mm -hmm. um, number two, uh, it opens you up to what's called a defamation suit. Yeah. Um, if they have not been proven guilty in a court of law, they are innocent until proven guilty by the law. And therefore, you can be held liable in a slander case, mm -hmm. uh, which can land you hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. Mm -hmm. And when you're a victim or a survivor, that's not what you need. I was so terrified of that in writing the book that I wrote and in trying to find support. I knew that I had people in my family, but um, because I had zero evidence, I had zero evidence of anything besides what people had seen just with right. their own eyes. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people just saw it as, um, you know, I don't want to use the I word, but he was not the intelligent, uh, most intelligent um, individual. <laughs> um, they just saw it, you know, that he was an idiot. That's what people thought. And, but I knew that it was much more menacing than that behind closed doors. And it was so, I was on social media and I spoke nothing about anything no one 
on Facebook knew what was going on when, when I walked out when, or even before that, yeah. I, I, um, Oh, where was I going with this? I totally lost my train you of know, thought. I, I do want to point out and, and sorry to interrupt, but I, you know, I read your book and there were aspects of your book, even now, 19 years after getting out of my last abusive relationship, where there were things that happened to me that I didn't even put two and two together as to the label of what it was. Wow. Um, and so, um, you know, it's a process. And for a lot of people, they belong to these groups, these closed groups on social, and will never post anything. Yeah. But what they are able to do is validate and better understand what is happening to them so that they can come to the realization that they no longer want to become that victim or be that victim, that they want to become a survivor. Um, you know, I recently made these t-shirts uh, that say victim by force, survivor by choice, activist by design. Oh, I love that. And um Yes, they're up for sale on our website. <laughs> What's your website? What's your website? <laughs> Victimsvoice.app. Um, and the proceeds go to purchase a license for those that can't afford an annual license for Victims Voice app. Um, <clears throat> so we don't, you know, they're, we're not profiting off the t-shirts. We're just rolling it back into giving people free licenses. Um, but that's how I feel. That's how I feel that my journey was. And oftentimes... You know, you don't have to go in there and peel yourself open um, to get results. Oftentimes, it's going in and just having other people explain their circumstances that validate your own story, mm -hmm. your own truth of what's happening to you. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times there are advocates in those groups and you can identify them and then, you know, potentially send them a private message and say, you know, I'm going through something and I need some help. I need some direction. Where do I go? Yeah. Um, there's so many resources out there mm -hmm. and you know, not every resource is right. Not, I, I went through a myriad of, of counselors and therapists myself before I found one that really clicked. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll sometimes get to the point where you'll feel like, Oh my God, this is not working. And then but I'm just going to try one more time, you know, and you try that one more time and then everything clicks. Yeah. yeah. So invest in yourself. Don't Absolutely. give up on yourself. Um, I recently saw this meme of a toddler <clears throat> and it said, if toddlers gave up trying to walk because they always fell down, humans would never walk. No. Um, so yeah, keep, you know, keep falling down until you finally stand up on your own two feet. Yes, absolutely. I love all that. So, well, I had a, I had a final thought and then it just, so, you know, my PTSD is like memory. Memory doesn't click. Memory doesn't stick with me. I still have trouble with memory. Um, but as you were talking, stuff was popping up, but, um, so one last thought is how has Victims Voice changed what support looks like? Um, I, I guess we kind of, we kind of answered, you know, we can use it in the, 
in the court systems? Um, I think the biggest thing is, you know, I, when I talked early on about my story, how my sister reported it and then the ball started rolling and yeah. then it was completely out of my hands. You know, it was no longer, I was just a witness in, yeah. in the case. You know, I, I had no say in the case at all. Um, and one of the things that was really super important to me where victim's voice was concerned is that um, it is not a reporting app in the sense that it reports to someone. Yeah. Um, people can document for years and never submit a report. Yeah. It's up to the user to determine if, when, and to whom a report is ever generated. So they go into their account and say, I designate this person as a records recipient and give them the authority to have that report um, on my behalf. Uh, if they don't want to give it to anyone else, they can assign themselves as a records recipient. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it could be a really powerful tool if you want to write your own story later and yeah. to have all those facts documented over time to be able to put pen to paper and, and you know, generate a book or a, a, a blog or um, speaking opportunities or whatever. Uh, you know, there's just a myriad of, of purposes for it. But the key is, is that the user is in control. Yeah. 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 I love that. Um, so it's victimsvoice.app. Yes. Right. Yeah. And um, so if this is clicking with you, if this is if this is making sense for um, for you as a listener, um, you can go and read more about the app on um, and and it's also it's not locally stored either. That's the other thing, right? It's not locally stored on your phone. It's device agnostic, meaning that there's nothing to download. You won't find us in any app store. There's nothing to download. We don't store any information on your device. You can use any device from anywhere at any time yeah. um, so that it's safe for you to use. Yeah. And people can, um, if you want to support others, they can donate um, licenses, they can pay for licenses for other people, right? Yeah, we have what's called the Victim's Voice Halo Fund. So a $40 donation means that 25% of that, $10 of that $40 donation actually goes into a fund where we'll be able to give up to $1,000 interest-free loans mm. uh, with six months to pay it back to any victim that needs cash to feel safe and get out. Um, and when they pay it back, they're not actually paying it back. They're paying it forward because that money goes back into the fund. Um, and then that other $30 goes to pay for an annual license for someone who needs it. Yeah. And if anyone needs a license, uh, we have a partner program. So there are partners around the country that have those licenses to give away. Um, you can also find us on social media. Our social media handles across the board are all Victim's Voice app. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yep. Sherry, thank you so, so much. Is there anything else that you, um, that you want to add that maybe I didn't touch on or anything? Can you think of anything before we go? Um, just stay safe. I know COVID has made this, you know, crazy uh, explosion of keeping people behind those closed doors. Don't that lose is one thing. 
Yeah, that is one thing that I wanted to ask is just, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Have you seen an influx? I, I, I did want to, I'm glad you said that. Have you seen an influx? Yeah. Um, you know, when we, we see usage numbers, meaning we can see um, when people, we can't see what people. So when people create an account, their information is encrypted immediately. So we can't see anything of what they're documenting or even who they are. You could be a user and I would have no idea. Um, but we can see that information is being posted to the database and we can see at the state level. That's as granular as we get. Um so we compared January, February to March, April, and we could literally see where states were shutting down based on the increase of usage. Wow. We had six states across the country that went into triple digit percentage increases. Oh, wow. Utah was our largest and it saw a 450% increase in usage wow. when when as COVID swept across the country. So we saw Washington, Oregon, Utah, then we saw New York, New Jersey, then we saw Florida, Georgia, you know, we just watched it go. And while things have somewhat evened out a little bit, uh, the numbers are still up. Yeah. Um, so we know, yeah. That's a testament that it's being used. It It is hopefully helping people. It we is. know that it is. We know that it is, but hopefully... Um, you know, it's being seen as that support so that we can break that toxicity and, and just get people the support and the hope and the help that they need. Yeah. And we've had, like I said, you know, we don't know who our users are, so we don't know when someone uses it in court, but we have had numerous cases across the country where the attorneys and the survivors reached out to us to thank us and tell us that it was used in their court cases. So that's our validation. Yeah. Yes. I love that. <laughs> All right, Miss Critical, thank you so, so much for taking the time and hanging out with us today. You are always such a pleasure to talk to. I love talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. All right, till next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.